we're living in an age where everybody is documenting everybody and everything. Where it used to be you had a series of photographs of your childhood, various birthday parties, family reunions, graduations. Now people seem to be blogging and recording and videoing everything they eat, everything they do at all times, as if there was some viewer that was watching them. As, as if they were the not the only ones watching their reality TV program. I mean, if you film thousands and thousands of hours of yourself going water sliding or hanging out with your friends or driving to and from your concert you went to, I can see that being fascinating to you, but maybe not to others. But this narcissistic, you know, need to constantly be filming ourselves might be part of the thing that gave birth to this found footage fad. I think fad's dismissive. I do think found footage is going to stick with us for a while. When I was young, we didn't have reality TV, which is why television was <laughs> maybe not as fantastic as it is today, but less polluted with, in quotation, real TV, you know, reality TV. In my experience, reality TV has nothing to do with reality, or it's like the most shameful, dumb corners of reality. I personally think shows like America's Funniest Home Videos and Fear Factors are rotting the tooth of the culture. Yeah, there's. it's funny to see a guy get smacked in the balls by a little kid swinging a bat, but the fact that they made thousands of hours of television based on that premise, not great. Joe Rogan may have a fantastic podcast, but his big claim to fame in reality television, I think, is cultural poison. But that's just one man's opinion. And this constant need to be filming each other, to be examining each other, to be showing our worst and best corners, I think bleeds into this fascination that we have with found footage. In this second episode on found footage, I'm going to try to be much more concise. I'm sorry about the long rambling introduction of the first one, but I'm not used to not having a guest. But I'm going to continue my argument and my evidence as to why I wish this, mo this, this genre of movies would not be so dismissed and maligned by horror fans. That's what really gets to me. I mean, if it's like the average people who will, the same people who would dismiss monster movies and slasher movies as trash, well, it's fine. It's not for them. But a lot of people I know who love horror hate found footage, and it vexes me. It vexes me. So I am going to continue with my argument as to why found footage doesn't suck. And I have three ranks of six to get through before I do my conclusions. So I hope you bear with me through uh, this next episode of Rankin Review. Six, five, four, three, two, one. How about we do it again? Five. Five. Four. Three.
constant question asked when you're making a horror movie is, how can we make this new? Yeah, maybe I'm making a monster movie, and maybe there's been thousands of other monster movies, but what can I do with this monster movie to make it at least seem a little bit different, to have an extra edge to it? Is there a character we can bring that we haven't seen before? Is there an element we can bring that we haven't seen before? Is there a level of reality or a level of cheese that we can do just to pitch the movie at just the right register so that it'll hit with horror audiences? A lot of these genres start to feel a little bit worn out, and they either fade away and then come back as the pendulum swings backwards again, or they fade away and stay away. I'm going to, for my first rank and uh, argument in favor of found footage, talk about six horror films that tackle very familiar subjects through the lens of the found footage, and that the lens of the found footage makes these old concepts feel fresh. Let's do it. The Frankenstein Theory is a 2013 found footage horror movie that has the unlikely premise of a group of filmmakers trying to prove that Frankenstein, or at least Frankenstein's monster, is based on a true thing. They are going to travel to the northern wilds of Canada to meet all sorts of crazy eccentric people and hunt the elusive creature. It is utterly preposterous in its premise, so points to the filmmakers for keeping a straight face through the whole production. The actors take it seriously, no matter how much the premise stretches credulity, and for some reason that kind of makes the movie charming for me. I mean, the credibility of it is... (laughs) A, the fact that he thinks that it's that Frankenstein is a true thing, and B, the fact that they're going to go out and they're going to find him on their first try. <laughs> you know, no one's no one's been able to see or capture Frankenstein for all of these years, but these group of filmmakers are going to get there. But the movie has this weird, wonky quality to it that uh, the strangeness of the premise kind of sets you off balance, so that when things start to get creepy, you kind of get hit off side by it you you don't expect it to sort of start to work on you the way for me at least in a few scenes it actually does i also love the sort of crazy uh, hill folk mentality that they approach northern canada with i mean it's true people who live in isolated areas tend to have their eccentricities kind of refined and sometimes they produce either really good or really bad results 
Uh, and there's some quite frightening sequences just dealing with the locals that are like really intimidating and frightening. I mean, not that we don't have you know, meth heads and crazy, you know, trigger happy redneckish hunter folk in, in Canada, but generally the people you're going to bump into are going to be about as even keeled and friendly as you're going to bump into anywhere else in the world. And I just love this idea of Northern Canada as this creepy, crazy no man's land where you're not safe and should not trust anybody. There's something also about the crazy naivete of the, this group of people. Like, they're they're setting out to hunt Frankenstein's monster, and either they don't really, in their hearts, believe it to be true, or they they set out on their venture just so naively as to not even have a plan as to what they're going to do when and if they see the creature. Now, because the movie's called The Frankenstein Theory, we would be disappointed as an audience if they didn't see something. <laughs> but there's, there's something to be said, like, even if you just thought you were making a fun, punky adventure mockumentary about how naive this kid was, and it was going to be more about your surviving this crazy cold winter campsites and taking yourself out of your comfort zone than actually truly discovering a real creature. But... You're in the wilds of Canada. There are polar bears. There are crazy eccentric folk. Why wouldn't you, you know, have a plan to defend yourself if defending yourself became necessary? And there's something kind of amusing about this. Like, okay, we're going to find us a monster. Okay, we found us a monster. Now what are we supposed to do about it? And the fact that that, that, that never entertains their thoughts until, you know, they're literally looking at this gigantic creature and it's sort of standing in between them and their safe, warm place to sleep. What happens next? What are we going to do? I'll tell you this about the Frankenstein theory. You will not have seen another Frankenstein movie like it. I don't think it's going to win new watchers to the found footage genre. It definitely has people who complain a lot to the camera and uh, who contribute a lot more shrillness than you know, helpful plot points. But the flip side of that coin is it's kind of more authentic to the scenario. As things get colder, as things are drawn out longer, as the group starts to get dwindled down, people start blaming each other. People start poking fingers. They can't do anything about the scenario they're in, so they end up turning on each other. And though that might be shrill to watch, it's also a little believable. And it's funny that they managed to find anything believable, like I said, in a movie with such an unbelievable premise. I kind of have a soft spot for the Frankenstein theory. It's not a smart movie, but it works more than it should. It somehow exceeds its own premise and its own limitations. And uh, for me, I think it's kind of amusing. It's a, it's a worthy watch. I mean, it's nothing to you know get super excited about, but if you're intrigued by the premise, I would say give it its day in court. Um, wouldn't it be nice to think that <laughs> Frankenstein monster was just wandering around the Arctic, keeping to his own self? It didn't work out with people, so he's flying solo. <laughs> but it, like I say, it's it's sort of like the Patterson Gimli uh, Bigfoot footage. One of the most famous bits of quote Bigfoot lore is that this guy who claimed to have captured this footage, and uh, he said he was telling people that before he set out on his journey, "Oh, I'm off to the woods to t to take pictures of Bigfoot," and off he went to the woods. First try, there's Bigfoot. I mean. <laughs> It's it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. 
And uh, in this movie, it's also hard to believe. And yet, I think we would be disappointed if they didn't find their Frankenstein. Find him, they do. But to what end? Shit, dude. Oh, fucking dick, man. Sasquatch. Can I suck your Holy fuck. We should get inside. Go, go. Let's go. Let's go. Turn off the lights, turn off the lights. Get the lights, get the lights, get the lights. Todd! What is that? There's something out there. There ain't no fucking animal, man. What the fuck is it? I know what it is. Shut up. Shut up. Speaking of Bigfoot, Exists is a 2014 found footage Bigfoot horror movie directed by Eduardo Sanchez. Eduardo Sanchez is one half of the creative team that brought us the Blair Witch Project, so found footage is not something that is new to him. It's interesting, in the previous episode on found footage, I talked about Willow Creek, and that was the much more restrained, leave the beast in the shadows, what would it be like, what's the experience, uh, psychological, that building fright. Exists does not play in the same way, even even though it's a found footage movie, and even though it's a found footage movie about Bigfoot. Exists wants to show you the creature as much as possible. In fact, if anything, that's kind of maybe the flaw in the proceedings. It's about a group of kids who are in remote Texas woods to uh, make sort of extreme stunt videos. They all wear GoPros, and they have bicycles and jump ramps and do all these impressive feats in order to make themselves famous on the internet particularly but unfortunately on the way up they and inadvertently hit something with their car which turns out to be a little bigfoot and the little bigfoot's parents are not super happy about this and some terrifying vengeance comes falling down on this group of of thrill-seeking kids again your classic setup of a bunch of kids going somewhere they shouldn't Messing with things they shouldn't, and paying a tall price for it. But I think the fact that the camera always manages to be the right place to see the action sort of starts to work against the idea of this all being captured found footage. But the energy, the excitement, the thrills and chills of the movie keep the momentum going fast enough that I think it's a really good time. Um, I mean, it's, it's got some conventions of the found footage genre, as I can keep on saying, but... I think that the reaction to what's going on is fairly credible. I think that the behavior both by the survivors and by their adversary, for the most part, makes sense. And it, if it's messing things up, it's just because it wants to be too generous. It wants to give you more than maybe the construction of the, the, the shots should allow you to see. But it's sort of big, bigfoot fun. And it's not a repetition of the Blair Witch Project. Again, I think... Blair Witch was about restraint. Exist was about, you know, putting the pedal to the metal, making a scary monster movie and not keeping the monster in the shadows, just making you scared and intimidated by that monster. And I think it's largely successful in that degree. I mean, does it have people saying, turn the camera off? Yes. Is the camera in the right place at the right time all of the time? 
yes. But it's a really quick, like, 81-minute horror movie. And I think it, it, it the fact that it moves so quickly and that it keeps its pedal to the metal lets you sort of forgive anything that's sort of flawed. Any, any flaws that come by are something you have to stew over, something you sort of think back on. Or, or maybe when you revisit the movie, you sort of say, does that 100% click? But while you're in the experience of Exists, it's mainly just a really frightening and exciting horror movie, which is what I'm looking for when I watch horror movies. And again, it shows that, that Eduardo Sanchez has some game here. Just because he made two found footage movies that are set in the woods, are they the same movies? No, not at all. The approach is different. The storytelling is different. The adversary is different in how not only what it's doing to the characters, but how it's captured by the cameras. So I think not only does this particular entry sort of reinforce how they can take an old idea and bring life into it, which is Bigfoot, found footage seems to love Bigfoot. It's like one of their favorite topics to tackle, and not rarely as effectively as Willow Creek or this movie exists, does it? But just because he made two movies set in the woods with two different adversaries doesn't mean he made the same movie twice. So not only does it make Bigfoot a credible scary monster, not only does it show the diversity of the found footage genre, but it also sort of proves that you can even make two found footage movies and they feel completely distinct from each other. All wins for my defense of found footage, if you ask me. Check out Exist if you want to see something scary. Can you just turn that off? Just turn off your camera. What? Cliff, just, just, look, I don't want to be a dick, but turn off your camera. Something wrong with, like, oh. Are you okay? Oh. 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 What are you doing? Derek, don't stop pulling. Cliff, what is Derek. Did I just blow my eye? What the? Did I just blow my eye? Oh. Guard your eyes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Afflicted is a 2013 found footage vampire picture. And there's few things to me that are more exhausted than the vampire films. Like, it seems increasingly that they don't have a lot new to offer as far as the seductive sex and violence of the sort of Dracula figure. I mean, the directions that they've been kicking doors down in lately in it for vampires has been more to the Twilight or the, you know, romantic Anne Rice vampire, which is not typically my, my bag. I like a vicious adversary. I like something that's scary, that's aggressive, that wants to eat me, not, you know, seduce my teenage daughter. So I find myself personally in the place with vampires that most people are with zombies whereas I just can't get that excited about a vampire movie but then there's this Canadian movie Afflicted where two filmmakers decided you know they'd come up with somehow managed to get like $300,000 they were going to go on a year long world tour basically vacation and document it and you know do video blogs to document their, their their year of fun and hijinks. But then they thought, well well, that's a that's a fun idea. But if we're gonna spend all this money and shoot all this footage, well why don't we build a movie around it? Why do we not stick with that exact plan except for also make a movie? And 
it touches upon, yes, one of the two becoming afflicted with this strange vampiric illness and the very quick and horrifying changes that manifest in him. But it's also got the added ripple of he's got a friend with him who can see the changes and react to them in a ways that he is not and that they're in foreign places, they're in a foreign land, they don't have immediate ways of getting help or there's a barrier between them and the apparatus around them that would maybe be helpful. So there's a lot working against them. The, the vacation goes from being fun to being highly troubling fairly quickly. I really do recommend Afflicted. This is one of those movies that I got super cheap and it sat on my shelf for quite a while before I got around to watching it. But the night came and Afflicted overperformed. I also really need to compliment the special effects within the film. It does have that tactile, handheld, some would say cheap feel of a documented film, but the special effects and the slow transformation that the main character goes through is quite impressive. It also succeeds in, in a way that a lot of found footage or forced perspective movies kind of don't in that the characters for the most part are playing themselves. And I usually find that distracting, especially if they're proper celebrities. Now, there's no super famous people to be found in this movie, at least not yet at the time of this recording. So it's impressive that they were both solid as a rock behind and in front of the camera. There's a recent, actually quite interesting horror movie called The Endless, where the writer and director are also the stars of the movie, and it's also a very low-budget affair. And I keep wondering, did they choose to cast themselves because it saved money, or do they really, you know, like spinning several plates at once? I kind of believe, just from my limited experience working in film, that, that the task of directing the film will keep your hands full. If you want to put yourself in a scene, I guess you can do that. Um, but make sure you're the right person for the part because you don't want to be distracting you don't want to jump out of the film you don't want to you know <laughs> put everything to a stop just because of your vain choice that you want to be in front and behind the camera people like Kenneth Branagh and it kills me to say it but Mel Gibson do not come along all of the time I don't think it's easy to direct and star in your own movie so I'm always really impressed with the Danny DeVitos of the world and these you know, actors who can manage to do that because for me the the plate is very full and the level of stress especially I think especially in a low budget film because you know <laughs> there's, there's no take two a lot of the time uh, you have to really have your shit together and in my opinion Derek Lee and Cliff Prouse have their shit together and they deserve an audience for their film Afflicted Thank you so much for meeting me Yeah did you have a hard time finding the place? No, no, not at no. all. Great. This place has been on the books since the late 70s. Pretty much anything old or outdated gets thrown in here. I was throwing away some garbage over the weekend and just saw it sitting in the drawer. Somebody must have thrown it in here and forgotten about it. Can I take this? Oh, it's yours. On March 13th, 1997, an occurrence known as the Phoenix Lights took place. 
A bunch of lights were spotted in the skies over states of Arizona and Nevada. And uh, thousands of people saw it. Thousands of people saw it. Now, some of the descriptions do vary, but police officers saw it, you know, uh, poor people saw it, rich people saw it, civilians saw it, like, the amount of witnesses is very, very compelling, and the amount of interest in people investigating the witnesses and trying to get to the bottom of it suggests that the powers that be did not have an immediate answer that they were satisfied with. It's a really fascinating piece of uh, UFO lore. I remember hearing someone describe it as if it was a huge patch of the sky itself started moving separate from the rest. Or, you know, some people said it was V-shaped lights, but all of them, patterns of lights in the sky moving slowly across the horizon. This is used as a launching point for this found footage film from 2017 called Phoenix Forgotten. And I quite like it. I think, A, I think the premise of it is really interesting. I've always found the, that incident to be fascinating. I'm not a big UFO guy, but when that many people see it and when the response by the government seems to be equally crazed and confused, uh, it tells me that something was in the sky that night. What it was or what kind of anomaly it could have been, who's to say? And Feelings Forgotten, I guess, may not have a lot of answers for it, but I guess it's one of those things where it was such a bewildering mystery, it was fascinating for a while, but because no answers presented themselves, it kind of disappeared. And it seems like a lot of people don't know about the Phoenix Lights. So Phoenix Forgotten seems like an appropriate title. It uses the night of the Phoenix Lights as sort of a launching off point where the main character's little brother catches video footage of the lights and um, becomes fascinated by it. He and a bunch of his friends go to further investigate and make a documentary about it and end up missing. Now most of the movie is done documentary style with uh, this girl trying to figure out what happened to her brother, showing us the footage that he shot, showing some of the footage that was recovered from his expedition. But uh, it's interesting to me that the movie sort of shifts gears. Mild spoilers for Phoenix Forgotten, at some point in the narrative she gets a hold of a what looks like half-melted camera and is able to remove the tape out from it. And via watching it, gets to see exactly what happened to her brother and her friends. And when the film lets us see that, it turns from faux documentary into straight found footage. So we see not just her journey to find out what happened to her brother, we see the discovery of what happened to her brother, and then her decision of what she's going to do about it. I don't know, from an approach standpoint and from the subject matter, I was most of the way there for that movie now. Maybe if you don't find this particular event as interesting, you might not have your foot in the door quite the way I did. But between the different tracks it took on its approach, and between the fairly compelling and, I think, believable performances given by a comparatively younger cast, I think it works way more than it doesn't. And it sort of reopened this can of worms for me, like, what were those Phoenix Lights? My mother spends the winters because she's smart enough to get out of Canada during the coldest part of the winters. Uh, she stays outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, I, I, I hope that no little green men are coming to visit her. Also, strange subnote. I mean, what is it with these little green men and alien abduction case and sort of strange borough locations? 
It's like uh, aliens are interested in hill folk. They're never going to like fly a a spacecraft over a major city and just say hello. They're going to go to some obscure location and dig around in the ass of some poor farmer. And uh, what is that about? Why why are people so obsessed with uh, anal probes and whatnot? For the record, Phoenix Lights does not get into anything that specific. But uh, I think that the whole idea of alien abduction or aliens sort of studying us would be less ridiculous and more intriguing and frightening if they took that ugly component out of it. I don't know what that has particularly to do with the Phoenix Forgotten, but I do encourage you to check it out. It is not your average alien picture. What is this? Hello, Dr. Kessel? Just relax, please. Everything will be fine. Whose voice is that? They can see me. Hey, they can see me. So you want to get spooky, kids? Let's talk about the 2013 film Banshee Chapter. It's interesting because it's almost a Lovecraftian horror movie, but it's also really intelligent in that it sort of folds in the Project MK Ultra fiasco from the United States. Um, if you don't know about it, it's basically a, a series of experiments that was conducted by the CIA or some branch of the American government on American citizens, a lot of which were technically illegal, and they were trying to find ways of mind control or to sort of beat through your defenses for interrogation techniques. They would put these chemicals in people and it would totally screw them up, make them extremely, extremely stoned, and it would sort of melt their ability to, you know, lie or it will just make them very open and expressive and and more easily manipulated, easily controlled or easily convinced to give evidence that they otherwise wouldn't. There's nothing really not horrible about that. But there was also some creepy things that came out of it. Some uh, how much of it we know is true or isn't, I guess we could say, but the idea that this movie is knocking on is that certain chemical compounds that they messed with actually opened a door so that people could see things. The creepiest idea of this is the idea of these entities that apparently several different people who were subjected to these experiments talked about, described, and talked to with remarkable consistency as to what these things looked like, how intimidating they were, the reaction to them, and uh, how that became a motivating, terrifying element in getting them to spill their beans or willingly become mind-controlled. Did they actually see something? Have they broken through? 
There's an H.P. Lovecraft uh, Stuart Gordon adaptation called From Beyond, which is a crazy, over-the-top sort of sex and violence romp, but that <clears throat> posits that we can open other d- dimensions by hitting a certain tone on this, you know, manipulated tuning fork. The idea that there is a world all around us that we can't see, but is nonetheless very much there. And just because we don't see it doesn't necessarily mean that it does not see us. So what the movie is, is a bunch of different people who are either affected by these experiments or fascinated by these experiments and either ingest these chemicals themselves or go to investigate the source. There's a little bit of a like a name celebrity in the cast with Ted Levine showing up, but I gotta say the movie and the concept behind it are really, really troubling and disturbing. And I do think it's a it's an interesting movie to watch. It's got some good scares to it. Full disclosure, though, I think there are sequences of the film where the found footage gets a little vague, where I'm asking myself, wait, wait, who's holding the camera right now? How are they getting this footage? Uh, To the movie's credit, it's so tense and consistently crazy and weird that a lot of times you're not really thinking about that with the camera and whatnot, but I was trying to watch with honest eyes these found footage movies, and I gotta call it when I see it, and there's times where the Banshee chapter cheats. Not so much that I would throw in the towel for the whole movie, because, like I said, the amount of fascinating subject matter and genuinely creepy scenes that you get, I think are worth the few flaws that come with the package. Banshee Chapter kind of slipped under the radar for a lot of people, and if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to check it out. Much like a lot of the films that I've talked about on this list, it's not for everybody. But as far as mad scientists, or the sort of paranoid genre or the attempt at knocking on the other world suggested at H.B. Lovecraft. This is one of the best of its kind that's come to mind in recent memory. So check out the Banshee chapter. making a movie? A documentary, actually. How's it going? Yeah, I like documentaries. Okay. Oh, good. We're, we're looking for the sweets farm. Can you help What's us? What's your name? Uh, Reverend Cotton Marcus. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. The sweets farm, please? Yes. I'm Reese. This is Daniel. Hey. Sorry, we're just a little behind schedule, so. No, no problem. The sweets are fine, please. Right, uh, we're going the wrong direction. You want to make a U-turn, actually. Okay. You want to take this road, go straight. Uh-huh. You see things you've already seen before, keep on going. You're going to hit the highway. Okay? And then I want you to go back where you came from. Are you kidding? No. Gotcha. <laughs> Thank you. <sighs> Sorry about that. Whoa, whoa, Jesus! Whoa! Keep going! What's he doing? What's he doing? Just go, go! The Last Exorcism is a 2010 found footage exorcism movie, believe it or not. I mean, that's a tough genre to tackle these days. I mean, they made The Exorcist in 1974, and I can't think of a possession movie that really comes close to The Exorcist. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that The Last Exorcism is going to be competing or punching at that level either. But it is, again, one of the more interesting possession movies, and I do think that the frame of the found footage helps us here. It's about a preacher or a minister played by Patrick Fabian, who kind of has developed a bit of a guilt and a complex over the fact that he thinks on some level he may be taking advantage of people. He was raised in the church, he believes in the Gospels, and he believes in, you know, a lot of what he does, but 
after his son is saved by science and not prayer, he kind of has this epiphany that sometimes religious people do take advantage, and on some level they have to know that they're taking advantage. So, as both a preacher and a showman, he decides to invite a camera crew to see him conducting these fake exorcisms. The idea in his mind, I believe, is that if the person believes that they're possessed, then they also believe that a minister can cure them. So if he puts on a good enough show for them to believe that they've been cured, voila, they are cured. It's... uh, it's interesting, so the main character is flawed, but he's trying to come clean about that. Uh, he believes that largely what he does to help people is a placebo effect. And to prove it, he answers some mail about uh, from a farm that says that there's a young woman who may be possessed, and he brings this camera crew along to see what he does. And of course, because this is a horror movie, things end up being a lot more complicated than he at first realized. I like that it takes a pretty strong stance on the charlatanry and the sort of cast priests and ministers in the same way that they would cast psychics, like the Whoopi Goldberg character in that classic 1990 ghost. They're sort of casting the church in that role, and I think a lot of people might be a little bit, you know, off-put by that, but I think it's kind of a more honest, clear-eyed approach. You don't know right out the gate that this guy has the power of Jesus at his back and that he will be able to defend any real evil should it surface. But you do think this man is trying to help these people. He's just being a little bit dishonest about how he does it. The movie feeds on the whole satanic panic, which had its real sort of (laughs) blooming in the 80s and then kind of disappeared. And the movie posits that no, it didn't disappear. It just went deeper underground. And it suggests that uh, if you look closer, a lot of these isolated communities, you know, they could be doing all sorts of things that we don't know about. So there's a lot of balls in the air. There's a really strong cast here. There's some great scares. I have to talk about Ashley Bell, who plays the young girl who is possessed. She does some really impressive body bends and is really good at moving from sweet and innocent to quite intimidating. She has really good range as an actress. Um, It's full of really good jump moments, but it's also got this integrity to it. It's got this sharp eye and uh, it's really good at manipulating you. Caleb Landry Jones, who's come up lately, he was in that fantastic Three Billboards film that should have won Best Picture last year. Um, He's kind of a nobody when this movie came out, but the level of intensity that you get out of that character is really impressive. It's another one of those found footage movies where a lot of the cast members share their first name with the first name of the character they're playing, so there's a little bit of blurring between the characters and the actors, but everybody is invested, and it's one of these ultimate sort of... (laughs) I guess, horror fairy tales where no good deeds go unpunished, you know? However well-intentioned, sometimes things twist and get a little bit ugly. And I like, again, the frankness and honesty with which they, they treat the minister character. He is not necessarily altruistic. He's not necessarily perfect, but he wants to do well. And for that reason, we can like him. There's a lot of dimension to the movie, and for an exorcism movie, and for a, quote, found-footage forgettable picture, 
uh, it's way better than it has any business being. I like The Last Exorcism a lot. When we did our found footage episode in episode 25, I felt bad putting it as low as I did on the list. It was just a really strong list. I endorse The Last Exorcism, but I invite you to skip the sequel. It did nothing for me. But the first movie, The Last Exorcism, standing by itself, very, very strong. some of the fallout that happens if you're one of these people who just dismisses an entire subgenre. I mean, even if you're not really big into it, I can understand just bumping into Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity and uh, getting to see them anyway. But if you actively avoid it, um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of these really interesting titles. So what I want to do now is talk about six found footage movies that I think people missed and that don't quite have the noise around them or the reputation around them that maybe they should. Uh, again, these are all highly personal choices, and again, I seem to be much more forgiving of the genre than most, but um, I picked these six for a reason. Um, again, not that they're all super <laughs> happy movies, or, or but they're not excessively grim. I Again, because found footage covers every genre, I'm not that big into, say, torture porn. So things like the Poughkeepsie tapes or Megan is Missing doesn't do it for me. Although I understand that there are people out there that have that, that taste, that really <laughs> like something excessively grim and ugly. But th again, not for me, but um, I, I, I give every movie a chance. But there's a reason that those types of films weren't included on this list. What are you? Only the Nazis would think of something like this. Throwing dead people together. Giving them knives for hands. It's insane. Come here. Oh, don't be shy. Simple mechanics, engineering. Each one is still alive. But I'm going to start out in a really strange place. I must have a particular soft spot for Frankenstein lately, because I've defended both the Frankenstein theory, and now I'm going to defend Frankenstein's army two found footage movies uh this one less implicitly about frankenstein's monster but about a uh, a nazi scientist building an army of frankenstein's monsters to help hitler win the war and uh just to give you an extra layer of separation it's it's about a russian troop of soldiers that stumble upon this uh nazi warehouse or scientific installment whatever it is uh so it's also in german and it's all being documented by the people who are there uh, at the time, which is, of course, the least credible thing. I think that it, the approach might have been a mistake. I think 
because of how outlandish the design of the creatures are, they wanted to just sort of tease them and show them in, in, in ways that will leave you wanting more, which I actually do. I, I respect that approach to a monster movie, <laughs> but it's a lot to do with the shaky tank camera and the subtitles and the madness of the premise. But the design, you guys, the creature design in this movie is awesome. <laughs> it, it feels like it's been torn out of some crazy first-person video game, only, you know, you're not in control of it. You're sort of just helplessly swung along in it. But, no, is it particularly credible? It should be super grainy and black and white, and, like, th if this is really credibly footage shot at the end of the Second World War, I mean, you gotta swallow a huge pill. But if you're a monster movie fan and if you're like into something that's, you know, out there, it's it's weird to recommend a movie that I think is an uphill battle. It's a little bit of work. You got to kind of want to, to go where this movie is leading you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the monsters. I appreciate the ambition and the size of the story they're trying to tell. And uh, yeah, it's it's an ambitious period Russian found footage Nazi zombie movie and uh, I guess there's not a lot of those and for that reason I kind of I kind of respect Frankenstein's army um, again this one's a little bit for the more hardcore you know R-rated monster fans there's some grim fates and again this is the type of movie you can't fight at all you know <laughs> if you're gonna sit there arms folded and ask the hard questions and say that's fake well uh you're you're maybe the wrong audience for it and i understand sometimes there are films that just push your particular buttons too far i've thrown my hands up in the air in other movies and i completely understand people doing it it's with frankenstein's army but it's hard to explain, you guys. You know how there's sometimes movies that are just so strange and so odd that even though you're not fully on board 100%, you, you just kind of want someone else to go through the experience? <laughs> well, that's kind of what's happening here with Frankenstein's Army. I mean, it's not amazing. The production design is amazing. The creature design is amazing. The execution is kind of flawed, but check it out. Check it out, you guys. It was a whole different world back when I was in the game. How so? Well, I had a good portion of my success in the late 60s, 70s. Back then, it was about quantity of work. How many jobs can you fit in a year? How many places can you hit? You know, we didn't have all this preparation these guys use today. But the good ones do anyway. That's true. You know, there's always been hacks out there. People mucking it up. One hit wonders. It's a bloody mess of some sorority somewhere. Get killed. Or arrested. You never put it together again. Makes it bad for all of us. It just cheapens it. Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is a 2006 faux documentary found footage origin story of a slasher serial killer. I was talking in the previous uh, movie, The Frankenstein's Army, about uh, how you sometimes ask to swallow a big pill, and if you can swallow that big pill, the rest of the movie should sit comfortably, but you just got to get that one down. This movie sort of takes place in a world where 
Every slasher franchise you've ever seen really happened. There is a Freddy Krueger in this world. There is a Jason Voorhees in this world. I believe they mentioned Chucky in this world. Every now and then, some supernatural force of evil cements itself to a person and they go on a killing spree and this this happens. It's a thing that takes place. If you can accept that premise, then I think you can go with the movie. It's got its tongue a little bit in its cheek and it's sort of smiling and winking for most of the movie, but to its credit, it does play legit horror in the third act. It does try to it does try to actually give you the thrills that you come to see. And by the time those thrills come, again, if you go with the movie, you will have liked the characters enough that you give a shit about what happens to them. You care about their fate. Kind of sucks a little bit more when, when you know, things go to the left. Uh, the idea is that there's a documentary crew following this Leslie Vernon, who's a wannabe. He looks at the Jason Voorhees of the world as like someone to look up to, to aspire to be. And they're sort of uh, attempting to document him, sort of forming his origins and, and making his persona and setting up all of the genre cliches that he has to meet in order to play the role of this supernatural killer. He needs an adversary. He needs a virginal victim to pursue. He needs a, a, a cool origin story, a remote setting that the kids can go to where he can make his first big splash and then disappear, go underground for a little while so he can pop up again for another a sequel uh, killing binge. Again, really ridiculous, but kind of funny and uh, not overtly winky in a scream way. Uh, interesting cast. You've got Robert Englund, Freddy Krueger himself, in the movie playing Doc Halloran. Scott Wilson, who lately lamented Scott Wilson, who passed away recently. I loved him in the, the Walking Dead, and he keeps on showing up in cool movies that I review. He's great in Exorcist 3. He's got a little cameo role in that amazing uh, creature feature, The Host. Uh, he's just this guy whose face keeps on showing up. It's one of those, you don't know what you got till it's gone. I miss you, Scott Wilson. <laughs> um, Zelda Rubenstein, the, I think this is one of her last movies. She's, of course, most famous as being the psychic who clears the house in, in Poltergeist. Um, so there's a lot of stuff here for the horror-savvy audience. But most of what you're watching in the movie is plain face interview, into the camera interviews, documentary subject type style. And they're playing all of this incredibly straight. And again, if your eyes keep rolling and you're fighting with it, well, guess what? <laughs> it's not going to work. Special words up to uh, Nathan Basil, I hope I'm saying his name well, and Angela Gothels, G-O-E-T-H-A-L-S. I don't know how you would say that. There are two leads, and they're both uh, sort of playing cards close to the chest. They both have things to reveal, and that slowly are revealed to the movie. A lot of times people will complain about the cast in found footage movies, and this is not a problem in this case. Uh, I've sort of been cheering for this, but unfortunately Scott Glosserman hasn't been able to get much off the ground off of the, uh, after this. He apparently tried to do a fundraising thing to get a sequel off the ground, but it never quite made it to the light of day and uh, since it's been well over 10 years now I'm wondering if it ever will but I don't know it's a wannabe cult movie which I think should be a legitimate cult movie uh, I mean if you can if you can handle things that are kind of silly but silly for the point of exploring the genre you like 
you just have to admit to yourself that on some level, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Child's Play and Hellraiser, there's kind of a silliness to them. And this movie acknowledges that. Not in a disrespectful way, but in a way to sort of talk about it. We're going to be real about this. If a world existed in which these things took place, what would the rules of said world be? It's sort of like when I was a kid and I was fascinated with the Muppet movie and kind of wanted a world in which the Muppets really did exist. If you could call a cab and then when a cab pulled up it was being driven by a big puppet bear. (laughs) I like this world, I'm intrigued by this world, but I recognize that it's ridiculous. I recognize the world of Behind the Mask is ridiculous and I embrace it and I went with it and I kind of liked it. Like, uh, I'm surprised at all the the hate that this movie seems to have collected. Sometimes people just, I guess you could sort of say it's, it's on the back of Scream, it's trying to be too meta and people were maybe getting weary of it in 2006, but I don't know. I don't know. I like Behind the Mask and I'm not ashamed to admit it. trying but we would really like to continue can you please stop that can you please stop that please we'd really like to continue we had about 10 different degrees between us including one in medicine three in psychology we knew that was not normal The Atticus Institute is a 2015 found footage horror film, and it's a really good what-if story, and that's what good horror movies a lot of the time tend to be to me, it's just a good what-if scenario. It's set in Pennsylvania in the 1970s, or at least the footage we're looking at is supposedly taken from the 1970s. It's set in a psych lab, and... uh, the doctors at this institution have all slowly or not slowly become convinced that they have a patient who is legitimately possessed. So convinced are they that the government has taken an interest and they've started to document, uh, I guess, crude experimentation and interviews with this woman. They don't know quite how to deal with her. Um, the footage has that suitable grain. The The period is fairly familiar, but like well-reflected. William Mapather is one of the main cast members. He's kind of a recognizable actor. I guess I've talked already on how that can sometimes be a work against a, a film, but uh, I was able to get past it. He has that good 70s shaggy hair, and uh, I think maybe the more nerdy people like me might recognize him. Other people will just let it sort of flow through. But yeah, I think it explores fairly effectively how the you know, powers that be would react if they found someone who they believed to be legitimately possessed. I think the movie also sets up, and I'm just going to mild spoilers for the uh, first bit of the Atticus Institute, but one of the instigating things that gets our main characters interested in this sort of supernatural exorcism woo-woo phenomenon uh, 
they find out to be a fake. And I think it was a kind of smart narrative choice of the movie that all of the doctors were on their heels because of them being historically kind of humiliated. So some of them didn't want to believe it anymore. Some of them flatly didn't believe it anymore. But it was going to take a special case to convince everybody. Uh, the lead actress, I'm going to murder her name here, Raya Kylestid. There's a lot of extra T's and D's in that. Uh, uh, she is really interesting in sort of playing this hand of not going too over the top with an idea of a possession or an exorcism type of movie. That's sort of the other interesting thing about the Atticus Institute to me. Anyway, although it has some of the tropes of it, it's not an exorcism movie. It's a sort of more of a movie about how people would react if they were legitimately confronted for the first time with something supernatural. And I think it's quite interesting. I mean, again, it's got found footage tropes, but I like these sort of medical trial things. There was a similar case with the uh, Banshee chapter when we were sort of seeing people either experimenting on themselves or experiments being documented by these mysterious figures in the background how some people will fall apart when you know their worldview is so radically shattered by something they can't deny by their naked eyes there is a horror to that that largely goes un unaddressed Spielberg did kind of the ah shucks wonder approach like in, 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 in Poltergeist you know the, the idea of seeing a ghost was almost awe inspiring and wonderful um, and this one goes more to scary and traumatizing so uh, check out the Atticus Institute who do you think you're dealing with I'm sorry do you think this is like a painter or something you have no idea what you're dealing with this guy you don't know what he's capable of and he's still out there he's sending these things out to innocent people and we don't know why or we don't know nobody, nobody cares nobody's doing anything about it you got no idea what these things do to your mind. What, what do you, what do you mean? They get inside your mind and they explode. Mr. Jones is a 2013 psychological horror found footage feature. And it's a different one, not very widely known, I don't think. It's one of the more obscure titles, I'm guessing, of the ones that I've been listening I've been listing this last while. Um, it, it's about a couple who move out into the wilderness initially to do a nature documentary, um, but it becomes kind of a fear thy neighbor story. Also sort of an interesting approach on uh, how do you find somebody who's trying to remain mysterious and aloof? Well, you find them by not looking for them. You find them by accidentally moving next door to them. The couple, while out and about shooting things, start noticing some strange, creepy, scarecrowish looking artwork here and there, and then just openly trespass on their neighbor's property after a bunch of suspicious sightings, and start to suspect that this is this Mr. Jones figure, an infamous 70s sort of pop-punk artist. Imagine like a supernatural satanic Banksy. He would create these weird pop these weird works of art and then send them to people and uh, the sort of cult around him said that there was some weird energy or bad vibes to some of the the work 
uh, which of course added to his mystery and the fact that nobody knew what he looked like or where he worked or how he was, you know, <laughs> how he did his thing. Um, and that these people sort of discover the world of Mr. Jones and this sort of backstory as we do because they didn't realize who this guy was. And like I said, they, they find a story that they weren't looking for and we discover it with them. I, I grew up in a small town and uh, we knew the people who lived to the left and right and across the street from us and that's just not the case now that I live in a big city and uh, that's an interesting and strange difference that I, I find from living rural to living urban. Um, the fear thy neighbor thing is more, I think, realistic in an urban setting but it fits into a more... Uh, country setting and that the isolation sort of becomes a problem for them and and uh, the more that they sort of poke this mystery the more they mess with their neighbor uh, you know there could be repercussions um, it's a slower paced film and it sort of becomes as much about these people invading Mr. Jones and, and in almost inviting themselves into trouble than it is the you know a boogeyman kind of story uh, I don't want to give away too much. I do think it's interesting. I do think it's intriguing. It's 84 minutes long, and it doesn't spoon-feed you necessarily. It's a different kind of found-footage movie, and I respect it for that. Um, and I just sort of like the uh, taking the sort of art to an, uh, a strange extreme. You know, all of the... What, what can't be justified in the name of art? Uh, what's too far? And uh, is somebody able to crack the code or to make a, a creation, a sculpture, a painting that is so profoundly powerful as to have, you know, physical repercussions in the real world? These are interesting ideas to explore, and uh, Mr. Jones does so. Special points also to whoever did a lot of the, you know, prop making for Mr. Jones because some of the art in the movie is really kind of interesting. I could sort of see going to a gallery and seeing something like that or uh, where some of the scarecrow-like figures are kind of overtly sinister but they're, a lot of them are not obviously sinister. They're just kind of odd. They've, they've got a weird kind of... <laughs> it's like the the art was worked in conglomeration with the Blair Witch or somebody like this. There's something really, you know, handmade and uh, of nature, but sort of crooked and stained and dirty and corrupted. Um, and that's reflected well in the art. Uh, I didn't want to miss mentioning that. Kudos on the production design and uh, and the movie's good at their slow reveals and that's a lot of what it relies on is you know uh, is somebody going to get caught like or a suspenseful moment like that but just the light revealing some of the artwork in of itself becomes kind of interesting and creepy and I think that's, an, that's a good accomplishment bravo our gaze is the murderous gaze here the minute you see some kind of high school girls kind of primping and looking cute you know those girls will die. I mean, already before the... <laughs> it's as though the, the guys in the theater are already feel rejected by those young women, even as they walk in the door. There's some ready-made anger toward them. <laughs> I think the whole slasher tradition is kind of made for nerds. You know, it's it's like outsmarting all the, uh, the, the people who are... Or the people who are trying to uh, 
push you down and keep you in a box pretty much and you sort of outwit them and uh, sort of one-up them and, you know, kill them at the same time. <laughs> Make them pay for all the crap that they've done to you. Sandman is a 2006 pseudo-documentary slash found footage horror psychological thriller from writer-director J.T. Petty. Spoilers out front, I am a huge fan of writer-director J.T. Petty. He did a great horror western movie called The Burrowers and a quite funny and underseen horror comedy called Hellbenders. Um, he's done some more artistic films. This is sort of a middle ground one. It's obviously a micro-budget thing, and uh, it sort of purports to be an examination of crazy, ultra-lowbrow, independent grunge filmmaking. Uh, splatter and gore, specifically. People who make, you know, almost homemade lo-fi horror torture porn movies for a select audience that care less about production value and more about seeing gore. And it's an examination of not just the people who make these films, but the audience that hunger for it. Um, good points to it is that J.T. Petty doesn't let himself get in the way. I mean, it's obviously his voice behind the, the, the narration, but he doesn't do the common thing of kind of making the movie about him or uh, overtaking it. A lot of it is interview subject stuff and taking the subject very seriously and letting the subject be interesting and disturbing in the way that it is just inherently interesting and disturbing. Why do people want to see the most realistic, grungy, torture porn movies? Why would they pay extra money to know that it's an, you know, a, a, a rare find to collect these films? Why, why are there you know, underground film festivals and circuits where you can buy these like their forbidden faces of death vhs tapes back in the day and what is that hunger what is that need that's being fed and is there any truth to the fact that there is a legitimate snuff industry some of them look disturbingly real some of them look comically fake some of them are incompetently executed and then there's a couple that stand out that are just chilling some of the recreations that they have made that walk the line that increasingly blurring as the movie progresses is, is this fake is this real how can we tell if it's fake if it's real how is the artifice of this film going to tell us what's fake and what's real and in the end i guess it comes down to your gut um it's really interesting and disturbing hard to kind of put your hand on movie it's not out and out horrifying although in the end it becomes kind of disturbing i don't want to spoil anything but like uh it's it's more the world that it's exploring it works the way a really compelling documentary will work and then it kind of creeps up on you and reminds you know there is artifice here this is a not a work of non-fiction <laughs> it is in fact a work of horror fiction but a good one and again i think an underseen one and like jt petty i mean anybody who watches his movies seem to really like them but clearly not enough people watch his movies i'm just such a fan of everything i've seen of his and i hope that you know he gets more work he's does a lot of stuff like writing for video games and uh, making micro budget films that, that are hard to get your hands on and hard to see but anything i've seen of his i've really liked it found interesting at the very least you know um 
So let's all support JT Petty. Let's check out Sandman. It also is a weird one to look up. It's like sand and the it's spelled s and the and sort of symbol and then man instead of actually how you would spell sandman and there's dozens of other movies and tv shows called sandman so even looking it up on imdb is a bit of a pain in the dick sometimes but look it up seek it out uh i liked sandman quite a bit There's someone upstairs. In the attic. You sure? All right. Let's go. It's coming from up there. My Little Eye is a 2002 found footage horror film directed by Mark Evans. It's about five contestants, I guess you would say, on some sort of found footage show, or at least so they are told. They are offered a million dollars if they can spend six months together in an isolated mansion. Cameras are all over the mansion, so they're watching and documenting every move, and it's it's in the way sort of wilderness of Canada, sort of snowbound place. They can't really just walk away by themselves. And it seems like an almost too easy gig. Put up with the whatever the show's going to throw at us for six months, get along, and collect our million dollars. Easy peasy. <laughs> well, obviously not so. This is a joint production between Canada and Great Britain, and it's got... Uh, an interesting cast, Chris Lemke, who also did uh, some found footage work with the Frankenstein theory, and people will know from Ginger Snaps, the first one, and uh, there's a sort of celebrity cameo to be found in this movie. In 2002, nobody much cared about Bradley Cooper, but here we are in 2019, and people seem to care a great deal about him, and yes, he does have a small part in the movie. The interesting thing about the movie is it's not just about the idea of isolation and cabin fever, which is sort of what I figured they were going to go through with this movie. It's all of the characters and the audience kind of are waiting for the catch, you know? The characters know it's way too easy that they get to just live out the six months and get their million bucks. People just don't hand out a million dollars for that. There's going to be something. There's going to be some sort of catch. And... That's what the characters are waiting for, and after a point, that's what the audience is looking for. And it's kind of an interesting double play on the on the side of the movie. I mean, also big points to the fact that because it's got this reality TV setup, I, I, I hate reality TV, but I really like My Little Eye. I, it, it somehow gets you emotionally in the stomach. There's a real knife twist quality to the movie. 
we slowly get to know everybody we get to understand the dynamic even the people that we don't like who you know are putting on too much of a show we kind of understand why they're putting on too much of a show they want to be entertaining to their presumed people who are watching it but in the end that's one of the questions of the movie who is watching them how real is this scenario and as they get closer to the six-month deadline what's going to compel them to leave or how are they going to be sort of whittled down as the casts must in reality tv shows it sounds sort of cheesy, but it's not. It's presented really frankly, and like all of the cameras that are spotted throughout the house, we kind of get used to because they return to it. It doesn't have the flaying, dizzying camera effect. It sort of feels like it's been coldly, stoically kind of documented, I don't know, like security footage almost, but like with one of the most overcovered sort of houses ever. I mean, if you believe the story being told, they're, they're being broadcast live on the internet, and, you know, TV shows are being made of them, so they're being recorded at all the times. But, um, yeah, waiting for that shoe to drop. Uh, and some people might think that this movie waits too long, but I think that by the time the shoes start dropping, we you you know the people well enough, and uh, the, the world has become kind of creepily real enough that it's really effective. And it is another one of these movies that nobody talks about that I think is actually really strong. But I bet a lot of people would just dismiss because, oh. Right, found footage. So right there, kids, is six more found footage films that people might have missed. And uh, I could list many more. I, I mean, <laughs> coulda, woulda, shoulda. There's plenty of more found footage movies that I find interesting. It wasn't hard to make this list. Things got kicked off of it. So, I mean, write me. I'll give you some more recommendations of good found footage if you want it. But that's a smattering of found footage that I worry people may have missed. So, to finish my arguments before my final sort of summation, I have one more list to make, and uh, these are six really strong, I think. Not just recommendations, not just things that I find interesting, but six, I think, very strong entries in found footage. Um, these ones maybe more people will have heard of, but uh, again, this whole two-episode podcast rant is about me selling found footage to people who seem to be unwilling to it <laughs> there's some sugar to help this medicine go down they're not all uphill battles so uh one more rank you guys bear with me Give me all your money. Oh, uh, what? Who is that? Doesn't matter who it is. Just give me all your money. Or else. Or else? Shit, man. Shit, man. Is that Andrew? It sound kind of like Andrew under there. And you got Andrew's broke-ass backpack on. Oh, you gotta <laughs> get. I gotta get too. Dude! <laughs> 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 
2012 found footage superhero thriller horror movie question mark it kind of covers a lot of ground in a little brief period of time and it's a really really strong found footage movie it's about three high school friends who discover a glowing orb underground something that fell from the sky presumably and are given incredible superpowers incredible strength the ability to fly the ability to do all sorts of crazy things it's kind of a classic superhero template in how do you handle getting power and uh how will it change you the classic sort of spider-man sort of conundrum with great power comes great responsibility and especially in the character of dane dehan we see a character who is not able to handle the powers that he is given even though it, it it gives him a boost as far as his confidence and a way to fend off the bullies and and uh try to make himself a better life that he's been struggling with uh the changes are not all for the good uh, it's a really well done special effects movie with at the time an unknown cast and uh, Josh Trank uh, directing it. Interestingly enough, this sort of idea of getting power before you're ready for it might actually have been reflected in real life. Josh Trank got hired to do this Fantastic Four movie on the strength of Chronicle and he kind of sunk his own boat by tweeting bad things about the movie on the eve of its release basically saying that the studio took the movie from him and this act of arrogance and hubris helped sink a movie that was probably already going to underperform but when the main creative component of the movie talks shit about it yeah it looks ugly so uh, josh trank might not make another movie who knows he may just be done with hollywood at this point but he'll always have Chronicle. I really do think it's an interesting movie that uh, it's not necessarily missed. I think everybody who's seen it really liked it, but I think more people need to put their eyes to. This is one of these victims of the found footage thing where people will like, oh, I don't need another superhero movie and I certainly don't need another found footage movie, so why would I waste my time with Chronicle? Because it's surprisingly deep. And like I said, these are new young actors who are putting this up in front of us and selling us this bill of goods and it's a special effects movie so on top of dealing with their character arcs and you know the sort of story that's being told they'll have to really be able to use a lot of their imaginations so that when they put the special effects in things all make sense and are believable there's something really charming about the joy of these guys when they're discovering their powers at first, how it's it's you kind of get sucked into it. You're kind of like with them. But when you realize that they have all of the foibles of 15 and 16-year-old kids and all of the power of a god and how that is not necessarily a safe or comfortable mix. If you haven't seen Chronicle, I encourage you to check it out. It, it more than lives up to the hype. It's a special effects movie. It's not one of these like grainy, super cheapo found footage movies. It has some real polish to it, some real game, some really strong performances, and uh, it works on many levels. Like I said, it's sort of a hard-to-button-down genre piece. 
Uh, I get the feeling like this upcoming movie Brightburn might be a, a, another one knocking on this door of sort of the what happens if superpowers are put in the hands of somebody who personally, intellectually, or psychologically is not so super. There's a fine line between superhero and supervillain. Uh, check it out. It's really, really good. No one down, but we don't have an address. It doesn't matter. I have these websites I'm what was in. That? Yeah, but Zach, when, that's when like I, nothing. Brandy, when I say Louisiana, then that's where it is. You guys, you're so Look out the windows. It's so hard to see. Can you see? Guys, you guys, there's somebody out there. Brandy, stay here. What's that? that October built is a 2014 found footage horror movie directed by Bobby Rowe. Uh, it's about a bunch of thrill-seeking friends who decide they want to make a documentary on haunted houses. And not real necessarily haunted houses, but the designed you-buy-a-ticket-we-will-scare-you haunted houses that spread out all over Canada and the United States for Halloween. And what they're looking for is the hardest, scariest, most traumatizing haunt they can possibly find. They are daring the world <laughs> to present them with something that will be genuinely horrifying. So you kind of have this setup, or at least I did. For me, I felt like, oh, this is a game movie. This is where we're going to think something scary is happening to them, but nothing really scary is going to be happening to them. And if I know that going in, it's going to dull my enjoyment of this film. Except it didn't at all. I like these characters. I believed these characters. Um, none of the scares felt false since they were going to these haunted house places to find these jump scares and to see you know, the difference between uh, a real tourist trap that's kind of benign or like a family-friendly Halloween haunt or some real backwood, unlicensed, we're-here-to-fuck-with-your-head haunt. And... This hubris, this this not taking Halloween seriously, you can feel, even in the early scenes of this movie, is going to blow up in their faces. Something bad is coming for them. And in this day and age where we have, you know, adult people dressing up as clowns and hanging out in the woods or uh, doing little dances for security cameras just, to, just for the sheer dark thrill of it. Uh, it asks questions about both sides of the equation. It asks questions about horror fans, really. Why do we want to be scared? Why do we seek out a scare? Why do we drive great distances and then pay $50 a person for, you know, some dude in a crazy clown suit to jump out with a chainsaw and chase us around a farmyard? Why? Why do we want that? And what's the psychological payoff for the people perpetrating the scares? And what if, just what if, there was a group that was willing to take it farther than they should? 
What if they don't just want to scare you? What if they want to traumatize you? What if they want to put you in some real danger? Are you safe? And I think most of the time on Halloween you are. But if you go looking for something, if you go poking that fire, if you go trying to wake that sleeping giant, you know, uh, there will be a price to be paid, mayhaps. Great, great costume design. Deserved jump scares. I mean, I'm not a jump scare guy, but at least this movie's setup is designed so that they're justified within the story. I really, really enjoyed the houses that October built. Um, I don't want to talk too many spoilers about it. There is a sequel to this movie. I don't think that the sequel is terrible, but I do think that this first movie by itself, I think I would have preferred they just left it alone. <laughs> but um, that's just me. I don't. It's hard to talk about it without talking about it. But I think you get the idea from what I'm saying that I'm a fan of this movie. It's a great Halloween season movie too. It loves Halloween. It loves horror movies, and it loves people who love Halloween and love horror movies. It's a really solid found footage horror movie, and I encourage you to check it out. Larry! Larry! Keep your voice down. What? What's wrong? Nothing. I just watched something really weird. It couldn't have been real. Okay. Is there anything on the computer? I'm cloning this hard drive now. It shouldn't take too long. Here, look at this. Tape is the final link for me. Um, I know a lot of you have posted that it only affects you if you play it in a correct sequence, but um, I've been experimenting. Is this the kid? Yeah, that's him. The whole purpose of this two-part lecture on the benefits of found footage films, you know, was to try and get across to you the diversity that is found within this sort of approach to film. It's not all the same movie. And the best argument that I have, at least in this last rank, I think, is VHS 2. I know I didn't mention the VHS franchise in the introduction or in any way yet, but there's three of them so far. They're all posited on the idea of their uh, collected VHS tapes of Grim Fates. Um, that either were documented by the people perpetrating them or by the victims themselves. And the idea is you can collect these VHS tapes and if you watch them in certain orders that they affect the people who view them psychologically. They drive people crazy. The first VHS probably wins the most points for having the two scariest isolated segments. And the third VHS maybe loses the most points for being the most out there kind of lose with their own concept at entry but the sweet spot the clearly best as far as there's no weak stories and not overstaying its welcome of the franchise is vhs2 and it's got some really talented filmmakers here simon barrett and adam wingard the guys who did the new version of blair witch and who did your next and uh you know the the guest uh, have basically the wraparound segment and the phase one clinical trials, which is about a guy who gets a new eye implanted in his head that uh, lets him see more than he anticipated and more than maybe he wants. 
Jason Eisner, a Canadian filmmaker, has an absolutely batshit insane segment in the movie called Alien Slumber Party, and that's that's pretty much exactly what it is. Like, there's kids having a slumber party, and aliens show up and fuck it up. And a lot of it is shown from the point of view of a camera tied to the family's dog. It's completely out there. Um, but again, completely fitting within the movie, because... <laughs> Gareth Evans, the man who brought us the Raid franchise and the absolutely ugly Netflix thriller uh, Outlander, he has this segment Safe Haven about a documentary film crew sneaking their way into a cult right in the middle of some sort of real serious business they got going on. Their timing just couldn't be worse for them, but uh, couldn't be more thrilling for people watching the movie. And then since I mentioned the rest, there's actually a segment done by Eduardo Sanchez. He of the found footage films exists, and of course the great-grandpappy of the found footage genres, the Blair Witch Project, shows up to do a first-person zombie film. It's uh, mild spoilers for the series, but this character who's wearing a GoPro, get, GoPro gets infected by a zombie, so we get to see a zombie POV. It sort of reminded me of like a hyperkinetic version of this micro-budget British movie called Colin, in which we sort of anchor with a zombie and follow him around. Whereas that movie is ambitious and low-budget and maybe overstays its welcome, this movie, this little micro-zombie movie in the middle of VHS 2, is completely crazy and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of could be even grown where the uh, sort of comedic moments of the amount of stuff that happens within this few minutes of film but uh, I think it's a lot of fun I think the whole movie's a lot of fun diverse directors diverse stories diverse approaches um, and uh, the the weak link really for this whole thing is the wraparound anytime they're not in one of the stories I might get to the next story but uh, that's 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 the only real complaint I have with VHS too so um Again, obviously people who aren't fans of found footage movies probably haven't watched the first, let alone the second. And I do think that as an entry point, it's the easiest of the franchise. It, it's the, the running time's not too long, and there's no weak stories. Uh, that's, that's a real win for an anthology film. That's nuts. I must have watched that 50 times today. And what happens if we actually find something? Well, if we see someone, we report it, and then they decide whether to follow it up. What? That's it? Yeah, that's it, and then we're on to the next job. Look, we are here to observe and report. We don't make the decisions. I think they only recognise miracles in very, very few cases. Look, we get a lot of time wasters. But that video is impressive. I mean, you said that yourself. Oh, no, no, it is, definitely. I, I didn't think Father Krillick had it in him. I thought we would have seen the strings. You're saying all that was fake? <laughs> yes. Final Prayer is a 2013 found footage horror film, also known as The Borderlands. You might find it in certain regions as The Borderlands or Final Prayer. If you bump into either of those titles, though, do check it out. It's a story about Vatican investigators that go to this obscure church to investigate insider claims that there's either miracles or sort of, you know, the opposite taking place, some sort of cursed demonic stuff activity happening. Supernatural strangeness in an obscure church. 
So typically what their job is is to figure out whatever the thing is. Usually it's not a, a real big deal. It's like one of the parishioners is having a schizophrenic episode or, you know, a priest is crying out for attention or there's something wrong with the building itself. But it's interesting because the investigators that we have here, they're clearly believers to a certain extent, but they've come to do so many of these investigations and they've done this for so long that... I don't think they've been confronted with the, quote, real deal, if that is, in fact, what they're seeing. That's part of the mystery, and I don't want to give anything too much away about Final Prayer beyond that premise. Um, but obviously, yeah, they start to become convinced that this particular case has some interesting and inexplicable ingredients to it. And I like that it's not an outsider thing. I like that it's an inside investigation. So they don't have to deal with people not cooperating or, or you know, trying to cover their tracks necessarily. Uh, it feels like we're watching forbidden tapes. We, we somehow got access to the Vatican vault and we found this tape of this investigation that took place. Um, it doesn't really play out the way I expected it to play out. Um, although it's it's familiar with the found footage genre, just just the actual the way the characters change and where the paths lead to this movie are kind of interesting and unique. And I don't usually get sort of suckered in by faith based horror, uh, demonic possession, or you know, the priests coming to save the day, waving their holy water or their their crucifixes. That it just sort of seems like the a tired tired sort of implement of these horror movies it's like the van helsings of the world have their place in the dracula motif but generally speaking in a horror movie it's it's become tired to me so i wasn't expecting final prayer to work on me and it did work on me um you know there's something wrong with this place there's something bad about this place so what is it and they want to find a rational explanation. And when they continue to not find a rational explanation, their nerves continue to get shredded by, like, well, what happens now? I mean, reporting this isn't going to solve it. Is there a way to solve it? Um, everybody within proximity of the church seems to be affected by it. It's almost like the church has soured or gone mad or, like... Is it a haunted church? Is it a cursed church? Is there some sort of demonic element here? Or is there just a human being running around messing with them? What, what is going on? And the mystery remains compelling. And uh, it's it's not a familiar one. I don't think a lot of people, especially this is a British movie, a lot of people this side of the ocean have seen it. I don't certainly don't see it mentioned as much. Uh, so check out Final Prayer and or The Borderlands because it's got a quality to it. It, it sticks with you. What's going to happen is you're going to feel a pinch and then a burn and I need you to not move when you feel that pinch, okay? Here we go. Okay, here we go. It's almost over. Okay, okay. Don't move, don't move, don't really good. few weeks, the doctors run a number of tests on Deborah in an attempt to explain the anomalies in her condition. Despite the painful procedures, 
the examinations raise more questions than they answer. A disturbing infection has occurred, resulting in an inexplicable scaly quality to Deborah's skin. Uh, has she been around any heavy metals? Dude, she does garden. You know, I don't, um, we, we don't fertilizer, have poison oak, poison um, ivy. Do you use pesticides? Make the vertical line of the T with the white blocks. Okay, Deb, take your time. I can't. I just want to see you. Whatever you can do, whatever, just try, Deb. You do that I again? tried there. The Taking of Deborah Logan is a 2014 found footage horror film written and directed by Adam Robitaille. It's about an elderly woman who has Alzheimer's who her daughter agrees to let a film crew document the condition, sort of see the progression or indeed degression of uh you know her mother's condition she's the daughter's got mixed feelings about it she doesn't want to exploit her mother but uh she could have used some financial help uh, these are university students and obviously they find more than just mental illness is at work here uh but there's sort of the double meaning of the of the title. Deborah Logan is being taken by a mental illness, but there's also something else going on. There may be a supernatural component. Is she possessed? Does she have another personality? Her illness manifests in increasingly troubling and creepy ways, and since the people are there to document her, the integrity of the perspective remains valid throughout it. And it is chilling. It's chilling because the acting is so strong, because we believe in and like the characters. And uh, even though it, it is boxed into the convention of, you know, the documentary tr crew forced perspective, there are things that happen in this movie that are genuinely surprising and that uh, I, I haven't often seen. There's uh, minor spoilers. If you don't want spoilers, please, you know, skip ahead a little bit. But... There's a character who, once he witnesses enough stuff, actually splits. He actually leaves from the movie. And you could argue that that might have been the, the right thing to do. But very rarely do you see that happen. I believe in one of the Scream movies, there's a supporting character who just says, you know what, I don't want to be messing with this anymore. And he walks out of the movie. And not great for the character because the character disappeared from the movie but uh in theory he survived the movie unless you know you could consider him another suspect anyway the taking of deborah logan deals with uh mental illness the same way that when i talked about in the previous episode m night Shyamalan did with the visit and it's a fine line to walk because it is a little bit exploitative isn't it I think the taking of Deborah Logan does it way better than the visit does. And I think it's because the characters are a little bit more believable. And the movie's not trying to fool you. It's trying to keep you guessing, but it's not trying to fool you. And that's an important distinction. I have so much respect for everybody involved. The moments start small, but get increasingly big. You know, you don't feel like you didn't get your money's worth. It's likely a low-budget film, I'm not sure, but it doesn't feel low-budget. Um, there's a lot of faces in the film, like, I know you from something, but they don't jump right to the mind so much so that it takes you out of the film. 
sometimes having too big a star in these found footage movies kind of pops the bubble of the illusion a little bit but um there's also some places you can hear this movie called the taken for some reason it has two titles but um i have it as the taking of deborah logan uh and if you see it as the taking check it out uh it's kind of a, a sadder sort of number in that the subject matter is on its face sad to begin without the gate before you know the creeps involved so uh it's another really strong and troubling found footage film general uh so that makes it the 15th of january stuff started happening around the house um and noises in the roof and uh sounds coming from outside the window and other movements that seem to come from Ali's old room. So we uh, we rehung the door to Ali's room and we got a pest controller to come in and check for termites. And uh, it didn't help at all. The door kept slamming and we still kept getting the noises from her room. There was just something weird about that house. I, it had a fairly strange feeling about it. I, mean, I can't explain to you what it was exactly but you go in there and you just have this bad feeling like in, in your gut and in the f number one position as far as a found footage forced perspective horror movie that i can't recommend enough and that i do think uh, needs a wider audience although it does have a cult crowd around it it's called lake mungo it's from 2008 and it's written and directed by joel anderson and it's an absolutely devastating horror movie about family, about grief and loss and about trying to solve a puzzle. And the more you come closer to finding the answers to this puzzle, the less maybe you want to actually solve it. But after a point, you've gone so far. And especially as a parent, it deals with parents who have lost a child. Uh, you want to know what happened. I think that however good or bad that would be, there's something inside the parent that would want to know what happened to their to their child. So yeah, during a, an outing, her, the teenage daughter of this Australian family drowns in Lake Mungo. And as the family goes to investigate the circumstances around and leading up to it, they find a lot of dark secrets about their daughter. And it exacerbates their already sort of grieving positions that they have. And the movie is a series of really smartly delivered reveals. It's got a very somber tone to it. The performances are absolutely compellingly real. There's something so naturalistic about it. It does feel like a genuine documentary. It's easy to get swept up in it. The horror fans in it who want the, you know, thrills and chills to start going, the movie keeps on teasing you. You keep on wondering, are we going to get it? And then you think you've gotten it, but then maybe you haven't. It's, it's so good at teasing you with information and remaining compelling and just breaking your heart with this broken family and them trying to move on and uh, having their pain just sort of documented and the pain of having the cameras on them 
and how the acting here is not as easy as it looks. You're actually doing a pretty layered performance. Not only do you have your character and your character in a state of, of shock and in a state of grief, but you also have the other layer of you're just an average person and there's a camera on you. And for people who aren't used to being on the camera, something changes about it. People who are on this podcast that I have as guests, as soon as I hit record, I can feel tension happen for them. There's something just fundamentally changes when you're being filmed. So there's that whole strange uh, spacey argument that the act of studying something changes it. It's things like that that gives that some sort of weird veracity. But Lake Mungo is an ambitious horror movie in that it's reaching right for your heartstrings. Few horror movies reach directly for your heartstrings. Sometimes maybe they back into it, or there's a character arc, or there's moments that kind of maybe appeal for an emotional reaction. But Lake Mungo almost lives there. It's a movie that kind of sits with you, that you... It, it feels like you've witnessed a funeral, or that you walk away with it in, in that somber headspace that you would uh, when you walk out of a funeral. But it also sticks with you. Um, it's, it's tough. It's tough because it's confronting death and loss in a fairly frank and honest way. Far more honest than most horror movies. Number one, easily, comfortably, Lake Mungo. If you haven't seen it and you are interested in found footage, check it out. But bring a hanky and you might need an antidote afterwards. <laughs> Something funny to watch afterwards or someone to talk to when the movie is done. Because I think it, it gets under your skin. So where does this go? What does this mean? What, what in the end have we accomplished, if anything, here? Talking about forced perspective, found footage, faux documentary films. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a type of movie that's sort of born up of my generation. They've basically been around as long as I have. It's one of the only new film genres that has cropped up in my generation. And for that, I take special interest in it. And I resent that it is dismissed. Um, I mean, that's why I've spent four hours trying to defend it. So, I mean, once again, for the record, I will just sort of respout my, my argument. Plenty of legitimate filmmakers dabble in found footage. Uh, it's not just for amateurs. Um, Found footage films aren't all the same. It's not all about people getting lost in the woods. It's not all about people having grim fates. They're not all horror movies. There are comedies. There are science fiction movies. There are every genre you want. It's just an approach. It's like choosing to make a movie in black and white or making a stylistic approach to how the story is told. So in that way, it feels foolhardy throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you're dismissing it based on its on that, those kind of decisions. Uh, and sometimes found footage will maximize a scary environment. Sure, you can have lilted sort of angles and, you know, the obvious top-downs of people wandering through the woods. But when you're locked into their perspective and you don't get the option of a cutaway, even when you maybe want one, 
It can make a scene more terrifying. It can make an environment more terrifying. Um, better yet, you can take a found footage perspective to try and freshen up uh, old, tired ideas. An exorcism movie is maybe more interesting now from a point of view of a camera crew trying to document it. It gives you a little bit of an in. It's so much so that like long-running TV shows will invariably have that episode where <laughs> there's a camera crew in the in, in the hospital set or in the sitcom set for whatever reason. So we get a different angle and you, know, you get to play interview dialogue off of each other in that sort of way. To a TV show, it's kind of like a lazy, we're running out of ideas flag. I, I would concede that. But as a, a choice uh, for a movie, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, people have seen a lot of alien movies, for instance, but seeing a gritty, shaky cam, you know, journalist tracking down the alien with, you know, her phone, it would be kind of different. It would make it more personal. And there's, because there's been so much rejection of the found footage, there's so many found footage movies that have gone unseen and gone missed by even an audience that it was made for, that should and could and will, I think, like them, if they but give them a chance. And I think with that last rank, I just came up with the sixth there that I would recommend that I think are really solid, but... There's a lot to the left and right. Like, I talked about a lot of movies over these last couple of episodes, you guys. And there's the, there's a lot out there that I could talk about. And of course, there's a lot of bad ones that I kind of ignored because that would hurt my argument. <laughs> and where we go from here, who's to say? But don't undercut the influence of these found footage movies. We see sequences in found footage and influence of found footage in a lot of movies, especially genre movies. They don't all necessarily have to be the whole kit and caboodle found footage, but there'll be that sequence where somebody gives an, a, a monologue into a camera, an apology into the camera, where they find the tape that shows a grim fate of somebody. There's a, an interesting sequence in the recently released Annihilation where Natalie Portman and her, her, her crew of explorers find a tape that shows the fate of some of the previous expeditions, and it's creepy, and uh, it's just an isolated moment in that film. It's just used as a tool for that scene, but we're going to see more and more of it, and if you continue to turn your back on it, you're going to continue to turn your back on a lot of quality movies. Thank you for bearing with me for this two-part discussion on found footage. I hope I turned a few people around, and I sure hope I didn't bore you. We're going back to regular found foot or regular found footage. We're going back to regular episodes of Rank and Review. I have watched way too much found footage. I have talked way too much found footage, and I'm going to benefit from having guests again. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up. We have horror fantasy we have westerns we have black exploitation so keep on listening to rank and review and thank you so much for indulging me in this experiment thank you so much for listening to this special edition of rank and review I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And if you have any feedback for me, you can send it to rankandreview at gmail.com. 
That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can also throw us a like on the Facebook page or a comment there. I will personally read those ones if you go to the Facebook page. And uh, if you like Rank and Review, I suspect you will also enjoy the Terror Table. So I encourage you to give the Terror Table some of your time because... uh, those guys know what they're doing, and uh, I'm on a very recent episode of it where we review a dark song, so you get a little rank and review crossover if you listen to the current episode. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Your ears make you my friend, and uh, if you have another movie nerd in your life who you think will like Rank and Review, you would be doing me a real favor if you told them about the show. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and please keep doing it. We got good things in the horizon.